0: a sincere thank you to you for inviting me to share fellowship with you today. It's a real joy to be here to meet some of you and the many families and the children who have come to worship here. May the Lord richly bless this congregation. Um, I suppose we're all more familiar with the first passage that we read than the second. We're familiar with the Day of Pentecost and the events that took place when all the disciples were gathered together after Jesus had ascended to heaven. We're familiar with the fact that the Holy Spirit was poured out of heaven and he filled the disciples and they were filled with the Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, preached a sermon with the consequence that as God operated through the people as they listened, 3,000 people were converted. They came to faith in Jesus Christ. We're also familiar with some of the controversies that there are over the day of Pentecost. And I think that that's unfortunate. One of the mistakes that I think people make is that they fail to connect the day of Pentecost with the finished work of Jesus. Jesus died on the cross. He rose again the third day. He ascended to heaven and then the Spirit was poured out not just as a consequence, but we should look at that as part and parcel of the work that Jesus came to fulfill. And uh, we, another problem uh, in trying to understand the day of Pentecost is that we fail to see it in its Old Testament context. That's what I'd like to do today, to go all the way back and to look at uh, Thanksgiving. This is Thanksgiving week. It's a special time in your culture. I wish it was a special time in my culture. It's not. Um, It's because I guess that that your culture, your, your country has been more willing than mine to go all the way back to those times after the Reformation when the feasts that were, the many, many feasts that were celebrated by the Roman Catholic Church, they were thrown out at the time of the Reformation and they were replaced by one or two special events, one of which was Thanksgiving because it was felt appropriate for the community at large to give thanks to God for all that he had done. And of course, your culture has continued that with the with that recognition that we depend on God for everything that we have, for our food, for our harvest, for our health, and for our strength. And so I hope, and I'm quite sure, that for you, Thanksgiving is not just uh, a celebration of something, but it, it, it is full of significance and meaning. But so it was in the Old Testament as well. The people of God were ordered, they were commanded to give thanks to God. There's one way of remembering what God has done, and that is by making it an annual celebration, just like you do. The people of Israel did the same, a time when they were to never forget what God had done for them. I want us to think about the three connected feasts that we read about in this chapter how they connect with what God had done in the past. But I also want us to see how these three feasts, they prefigure what God was going to do in the future. And of course, by that I mean how he was eventually going to send his only begotten son into the world who was going to be crucified and be buried and rise again on the third day. And how these three feasts, in Leviticus 23, are almost reenacted in a way in the death and the resurrection or and the, the ascension of Jesus Christ and the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So what were these three feasts? Well, we begin with the day of uh, the Passover, the time of the Passover. The Passover, of course, was the time when the children of Israel, they remembered how God, through Moses, had delivered them from the bondage and the cruelty of the Egyptians. We know the story. Even the youngest, I'm sure, here today knows the story of Moses and how the God sent the plagues on Egypt and how each one of them had no effect on the cruel, wicked Pharaoh who refused to let the people of Israel go until the tenth plague where God... Uh, decided he chose to put to death the firstborn male of everyone in Egypt. And there was only one way in which God's people were going to escape this plague, and that was by taking a lamb, a year old, without blemish, and they were to kill it, they were to take its blood, and they were to paint it on the doorposts of their house. Then they were to roast the lamb. They were to eat it with their coats on, ready to go. They were to eat it with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. And that was the night that the angel of the Lord came to to Egypt. And when he saw, that's what God says, when I see the blood on the doorposts, I will pass over that house. So every house in Egypt Lost the firstborn male, except those who had listened to the voice of God and who had done as he had directed. And sure enough, we know the rest is history. They escaped. They were delivered from Egypt. they, They fled Egypt and they went across the Red Sea into the wilderness and eventually into... But that night, that occasion was to become an annual feast. They were never to forget how God had eventually delivered them from the bondage and the cruelty of the Egyptians. It was to take place on the 14th day of the first month, which is around about the end of March. But it wasn't just a looking back. It was God's way of announcing to his people that he was going to work beyond his promise to take them into the promised land. It wasn't just a thanksgiving, it was an act of faith. It was something which they, in which God was speaking to them about an event that was still to come, as well as looking back it also gave way to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread took place just immediately after the Passover, and it lasted a week. And during that week, the people were not allowed to eat anything with leaven in it. And by this, they were to remember that God had not just called them out of Egypt. He hadn't just delivered them from one context, but that he had called them to be his special, unique people, a people in, with whom he had created a bond, a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they were to be, they were to live uniquely for him. The Ten Commandments were God's directive. We read them earlier on in the service. God's directive as to how the children of Israel were to live uh, as his people. They were to have no other gods except him because there are no other gods except him. They They were not to build for themselves idols because an idol is completely futile. God is invisible. God is almighty. He is holy. He is other An idol can never represent the living and true God. They mustn't take the name of the Lord in vain. They must worship him on the Sabbath. They must rest for themselves and for the glory of God, and so on and so forth. They must live differently. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a reminder. Remember how, as you go through the Bible, the idea of leaven is is like a symbol for the effect that sin has on, on us, and for the way in which, if we allow it to, it will, it will draw us away from God. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul makes this abundantly clear. They were to live as a unique people, they were to live differently from the world around them. And by so doing, they were to witness, they were to bear witness to the greatness and the majesty and the reality of the living and true God. That challenge is still there today. How differently do we live as God's people in today's world so that by the difference in our lives, the uniqueness of the way in which we live our lives to the glory of God, men and women will see something special, something unusual, something that they don't have. A peace, the peace of God that passes all understanding, the joy that belongs peculiarly to the people of God. That's a huge challenge. The easiest thing in the world is for us to become assimilated, is for us to be drawn into the way that we, that, of uh, the other people live. But the challenge that the Bible sets before us is to live holy lives unto the Lord. So, so there was the Passover. And then that gave way to the feast of unleavened bread. And then that gave way to the feast of first fruits. And that took place on the first day of the week after the Sabbath, after the Passover. And that marked the beginning of the harvest. This feast marked the beginning of the barley harvest, the experts tell me. And in this feast, the defining feature of this was that they were to take a sheaf of barley and they were to wave it to the Lord. They were to, they were to present it along with the sacrifices that are also detailed in this chapter. I don't want to go into all the details of chapter 23 because there aren't time. But the defining feature of this feast, the feast of the first fruits, was that they were to... They were to wave it before the Lord, the sheaf before the Lord. And again, this was a recognition uh, of God's generosity, his provision for his people. And it, it was to mark an important principle in the act of thanksgiving. It was to, because it took place at the beginning of the harvest, This is an important point. Because it took place at the beginning of the harvest, it wasn't just to to mark what God had already done, but that it was to mark the faith that the people had in God, that he would continue to provide for them. That the God who had done great things in the past would continue to do great things in the future. So it wasn't, So Thanksgiving wasn't just an act of looking back. It was an act of looking forward to what God was still to do. The same God who had displayed and demonstrated his faithfulness to his people in the past is the same God in whom they can confidently trust to fulfill his promises in the future. So when God says, I will lead you into the promised land... The people of God can say, we confidently believe that. We haven't seen it. We haven't experienced it. But on the bare word of God alone, this God who has provided for us everything so far will bring us. It doesn't matter what enemies we face. It doesn't matter what challenges we face on the road. It doesn't even matter how we... The God that we worship is the covenant-keeping God. And whatever the future holds, God will be faithful to his promise. And that's something we can lay hold on as we engage in this week of thanksgiving. It's something that we, that, in which thanksgiving means so much more to the people of God than it means to the world around us. Because we can say, not only has God done this for us already... But God will do exceeding abundantly, more than we can ask or even think. What is it that Romans says in chapter 8? He says, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also freely with him give us all things? That's a future promise that is marked by Past reflection and thanksgiving. So I hope you, you, you see what, what I mean. That thanksgiving is just more than looking back. Thanksgiving is as much looking forward as it is looking back. Looking forward in faith. Not having seen the promises, Hebrews 11. Not having seen them and yet believing them. We are men and women of faith. This adds a whole new dimension to Thanksgiving. And it means also that God is looking for more than that. I've lost count. I was in pastoral ministry for 20 years and have been in loads of many, many conversations with people, and many, many of which have been less than uh, less than an obvious commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, don't know, I can remember, I, 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 if, I had a, if I had a dollar for every person I've spoken to who said to me, Oh, I, 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 I'm thankful to God. And what they really mean by that is that that's the extent of my worship. That's the extent of my commitment. That's the extent of my faith. I believe in God. Sure, I believe in God. And I'm thankful every night. I've even heard people saying to me, there isn't a day goes past when, when I don't say thanks to God. Oh, that sounds great, doesn't it? Sounds really pious. But what it is, is an excuse And let me put it this way. God is not primarily looking for our thanksgiving, if that's what it means. God is looking for faith. Faith which listens to his word and responds to his command to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what God is looking for in humanity. And what we do is we substitute that for, well, I'm thankful what I'm saying this morning is that God's people who look to Jesus Christ by faith, our thanksgiving means a whole lot more than looking back into what God has done for us. It means that we are trust and that we have every confidence in the, that the, the Lord who, who has provided us with our lives and with our livelihoods and with our health and strength and everything, he has also provided us with his Son the Lord Jesus Christ as the means of our forgiveness. And he has promised us that as we look to him by faith, he will provide everything that is needful. He will not withhold one uh, good thing from us. But then thirdly, um, as we move on to the third feast, there was the 50 days or the Feast of the first fruits. And this was now 50 days after what we've described before, the waving of the first sheaf before the Lord. Now there's the completion of the harvest. This time they tell me that it is the wheat harvest. So the first of these fe- feasts after the Passover, it marked the beginning of the barley harvest, which was the beginning of the, sort of, the, whole, bar- the whole harvest season. Now we've come to the end where we're, we're now marking the completion of the harvest. Again... It was another occasion for coming together. And they were to come together solemnly. You get a sense of the solemnity of this passage, don't you? This is God's word and it's God's command. And yet, we would be wrong if we didn't recognize that there was also a sense of incredible joy about what God is commanding. Now, a lot of people say, well, you know, the Bible is so morose, it's so miserable. God clearly wants us to be miserable people. That's not what I see in the Bible at all. I see what I see in the Bible is that God commands his people to rejoice in the Lord always. And yet it is a solemn rejoicing. How can these two be, these two things be? Is one not an antithesis of the other? No, it isn't. Worship is the most solemn experience that we can engage in, and yet worship is the most joyful experience that we can engage in because it's in worship that we not only find out how holy and how unapproachable God is, it is also the occasion when we discover that through Jesus Christ we have access into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Deuteronomy chapter 12 is the is a, is a most fascinating chapter. And uh, if you haven't read it recently, then, then when you go home this afternoon read it, it's the most fascinating chapter. Because it's a reflection over how they, the children of Israel, how they met with God after being delivered from Egypt. And remember how on Mount Sinai. They all surrounded the mountain and God appeared to them in the most fearful, frightening manner. There were thunders, there was was fire, there was a noise. And the people couldn't cope with it. They were absolutely terrified. And so they had to create a mediator. Moses spoke on their behalf. Deuteronomy chapter 12 tells us that when the children of Israel were to reach the promised land... Guess what was going to happen once again? God was going to meet them. Once again, God was going to meet them. Except this time, God commanded his people, You shall rejoice before the Lord. They were not to forget his holiness, they were not to forget who he was. And yet they were to rejoice in their relationship with him because they could trust in his love and in his commitment, his covenant commitment towards them. We can do the same this morning. We're never to forget who he is. And yet through the Lord Jesus Christ, God announces his covenant commitment towards his people. Now on this third feast, the Feast of Weeks, they were to take, and the interesting thing is, remember how on the the last feast, they were to take a sheaf of barley. This time, they're not to take a sheaf, but they're to take a loaf of bread, which symbolized the completion of everything. That's That's what you do with wheat, isn't it? You make bread. That's the finished product. So what the people are doing is instead of taking the raw ingredients as they did at the the beginning, they were now to take the finished product, that which satisfied them and that which gave them the health and the strength that they needed. And by so doing, they were to display before the Lord, they were to consecrate the finished product to the Lord in recognition that that they had done nothing to provide this for themselves, but God had done everything for them. This was the result of God's generosity and his goodness. Now, contrast that with the nations around about Israel. There was a massive difference between the faith of the children of Israel in the living and the true God... Compared to the religion of the nations about them, whether that was Moab or whether it was the Midianites or whether it was the, the, the peoples of the land of Canaan, what was the difference? There was a massive difference. The heathen nations round about Israel, they constantly tried to please their gods. And they, 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 were, they, were at, they were at it all the time and they could never be satisfied. Of course, they weren't gods in the first place. And so the great pressure they were always under was to make sure that they did enough to keep away the anger of the other gods. Now, here's Israel. They're already in favor with the living and the true God who loves them and provides for them. And so their act of of bringing the bread or the sheaf before the Lord is not an attempt to please God. It's not an attempt to win his favor. But it is a way of saying thank you for your bounty and for your generosity and for your great love, your covenant love that you have bestowed upon us. They didn't need to please their their God. Their God was already pleased in his covenant commitment to them. And that's the same with us this this morning. Our worship here today is not an attempt to win God's favor. It's not a way of turning away God's anger. There already is someone who has turned away God's anger The Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, our mediator, our sacrifice, our great high priest. And so, these were three feasts then. The Passover, the the first fruits, and then the Feast of Weeks. But it doesn't stop there. And I'm going to say this just in closing. The time has gone. It doesn't stop there because Leviticus 23 is a prophecy. It wasn't just a way of marking what God had done, neither was it simply a confidence that the people could continue to trust God. God is speaking to the whole world in Leviticus 23 and he's announcing a glimpse. He's giving his people a glimpse of what he is one day going to do. And we are so privileged to be able to look back through the lens of the New Testament and to see how each of these three feasts was fulfilled in the coming and in the death and in the resurrection and in the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do I know that? Am I not reading too much into the Old Testament? No, I'm not. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been crucified for us. What he's saying is that The Passover is not just an act of remembrance, but a prophecy that signified what God was going to do in sending his son and him going to the cross. Jesus is the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who is the sacrifice. And it's no accident that Jesus died at the time of Passover. But what I believe this chapter tells us, and the unfolding events after the death of Jesus tells us, is that, that the, the, the events that took place, they map out, they are mapped out by Leviticus chapter 23. What happened after Jesus died? He was buried. And then on the first day of the week, exactly the day that the first fruits were offered, Jesus rose from the dead. What is it that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 and 20? Christ rise, rose from the dead as the first fruit. That's exactly the term that the Apostle Paul used. Paul is intentional in marking, in mapping out the resurrection of Jesus Christ with a feast of the first fruits. And then, of course, 50 days afterward, not 50 weeks, but 50 days afterwards, what happened? The day of Pentecost, when all the disciples were together and the Holy Spirit was poured out. And Peter spoke with such spirit-anointed power that 3,000 people, and that was only the beginning. As the church grew and developed and expanded, more and more and more people were going to come to faith. In, in other words, you have this mighty harvest. You have the completion, just like the bread was offered to God that was presented before the, God, before the Lord. Here is the finished product, the Faith of thousands of people, the result, the harvest of Jesus' death. And it takes place exactly at the right time. In other words, the gospel is foreshadowed by these feasts. And it's the gospel, my dear friends, the gospel that brings us together here in a week of thanksgiving as nowhere else does. God, And, and the, the wonderful thing is, This morning is that God receives our thanks. Our thanks is not just a cultural thing that we do. It's not something that that we do with with no meaning. And loads of people do that, sadly. But, But as we come in real worship through the Lord Jesus Christ, we come to a God who actually receives our thanks. As our Father in heaven, the one who has done in us and for us, more than we can ask or even think. The God who is able, this is what the Apostle Paul tells us. And I want to finish with this because this, this seems to describe God's generosity as nowhere else. The God who is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. That's what I call the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel, of course, is the the lie that tells you that if you do this, that, and the next thing, God's going to make you rich. That's just nonsense. I've got a far better message than that. And that is that God is able to make all grace abound to you, We have everything if we've got Jesus Christ. If we love and follow him, we have everything. We lack nothing at all. We already have it all. And God has promised us everlasting life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if that isn't a reason to give abundant thanks to God, then I don't know what is. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to... We want to bring ourselves afresh to you in repentance because we do not deserve um, what you have done for us, the abundance of what you have done for us, not only every day, but in sending the Lord Jesus Christ to decisively take away our sin, to wash us clean, to regenerate us, to justify us, to adopt us into your family and to send your Holy Spirit to begin that work of sanctification and to promise us everlasting life in heaven with you beyond the day of our death. Our Father in heaven, we want to adore you afresh this day. We want to spend the day and indeed the rest of our lives adoring you in our obedience and in a response to your calling. Our Father, we pray that this day and always will be a day in which we render our gratefulness to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.com.